Today's guest is an engineer, a music maker, and an advertising guru. He's worked with Beyonce and Apple, and that has put him on a path to become a leader in culture, which he calls the biggest cheat code ever to influence human behavior. Welcome to Work Better, a Steelcase podcast where we think about work and ways to make it better. I'm your host, Chris Congdon, and I'm here with our producer, Rebecca Charbowski. Hi, Chris. You were talking about Dr. Marcus Collins. His new book is called For the Culture. It's filled with examples from his life and work about how to harness the power of culture to influence people, both in the world of marketing but also in our workplaces. Mm -hmm. He's the head of strategy at Wyden and Kennedy, New York. He's also a clinical assistant professor of marketing at the University of Michigan. Wow, that is a lot. (laughs) It is a lot. So after we talk with Marcus, we're going to be joined by Robin Rosebro. And she is a workplace researcher with Steelcase who works as an architecture and design manager. She's also probably one of the most well-read people you'll ever meet. Oh my gosh, so much reading. I can't imagine how many books she goes through, but she's going to talk with us about the places we work and how those can influence behavior and ultimately culture. If you know anyone who needs to have a better day at work or is interested in harnessing culture for the power of influencing behavior like this episode, we'd really appreciate if you would share this podcast with them. Welcome to Work Better, Marcus. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I am super stoked for this. Oh, thanks. I'm really excited to talk to you more because I think your book is really fascinating. And all the work that you've been doing on culture is really interesting, I think, to where we're all at right now in terms of our work. But if you wouldn't mind, I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about kind of your journey, like how you got to the place to where you're writing this book, because it feels like you have done so many different things in your life. I felt a little humbled (laughs) when I was looking at it going, like, how did you do all of this stuff? Do you mind just giving us your backstory a tiny bit? Sure, sure thing. It's it's best captured in uh, the Beatles song, The Long and Windy Road. Uh, (laughs) It looks better in the rearview mirror than it did going through it. But ultimately, I'm a kid from Detroit, born and raised, and I did really well in math and science in high school. So the thing you did in the 90s, if you were into math and science, you went to engineering. So that's Mm -hmm. what I did. Studied material science engineering because I was really excited about polymers, thought they were kind of cool. And while I think they're very interesting, I don't know if that's the best way to describe polymers as as cool. A little nerdy. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, but I was cool with that. Uh, I'm, I'm totally <laughs> cool with being a nerd. Uh, but I was really excited about what was mm-hmm. music, and um, I didn't really love my engineering courses because I didn't feel like like uh, like I was in the right frame to take them in. So I started taking some courses in the School of Music, really fell in love with major sevenths, really fell in love with, with the, these chord changes that I knew so familiarly from listening to music. Uh, my, my whole life, like Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson and Babyface mm-hmm. and the like. But I felt like it was the first time I'm, I remember being excited about learning as an mm-hmm. adult. So I went home and said, Mom and Dad, I think I want to be a songwriter. And my mom and dad said, I think you're crazy. This is not what you want to do. <laughs> as parents do, yes. <laughs> as they do, yes. So I went back to, to school at the end of the summer and finished my engineering degree and went into the music industry and had some success. I had some success. It wasn't sustainable, mm-hmm. but I had some success as a songwriter, producer, um, and the company I started didn't fare so well. So I went back to school to get my MBA to figure out this disruption that was mm-hmm. happening in the marketplace of music known as digital. And from the, the MBA program here at the Ross School of Business, University of Michigan, 
went out west to go work at Apple, uh, met Matthew Knowles, who has a daughter named Beyonce. And he says, let me get this straight. Yeah, you were uh, an engineer. You started a music company. You have an MBA. You work at Apple, iTunes, and you're black? Like, who are you, man? You're a unicorn. Yeah. You don't exist. It's like, no, <laughs> I, I exist. So he says, well, you should run digital strategy for Beyonce. And I said, yes, sir, I should do that. Um, <laughs> of course you should. <laughs> totally, as one would, as one should. Uh, so I, I ran digital strategy for Beyonce during the I Am Sasha Fierce days, which is an amazing time to be in the Beyonce business. Like, there's, Not like there's ever a bad time, but this was yeah. a uniquely amazing time right, because she was right. sort of ascending from just being Beyonce, the megastar, to being Queen B as we know her today. Um, yep. And I went from the music world into the world of, of advertising. And it's really where I, I really found my footing when I started to explore the behavioral sciences inside of advertising, mm-hmm. understanding why people do what they do. And the better I became at understanding those things, the better I became as being a practitioner. And the better practitioner I was, the more curious I was about the scholarship. And that really became the two worlds that I occupied, the convergence of the two, of practice and academia. And I explored the academic side even further, finishing my doctoral degree, and then becoming a professor. So now I sit right at the convergence of the two, sort of bridging the academic practitioner gap between how we put ideas in the world as practitioners, um, and then how we interrogate those ideas as a scholar. I'm also a little nerdy, and I'm nerdy about what you were just talking about, like human behavior. And so I want to talk particularly about your work on culture. I just want to let all of our listeners know, don't worry, I am going to ask some questions about Marcus's work with the Queen Bee, because like, we just got to know a little bit more about that. So we'll, we'll get to that. But let's start out talking about culture, because, you know, culture is one of those things that We use the term a lot, but I don't know if everybody's really has the same understanding of what culture is, you know? And so some would describe it as when you think about culture from a company perspective, a corporate perspective, people say that, you know, you can't duplicate culture. Culture is unique within each organization. And and one of the things that you said that really struck me is that there's no vehicle more influential to human behavior than culture. So for a human behavior geek, I really wanted to hear you just talk a little bit more about how you think about culture. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's perfectly stated there, Chris, that culture is one of those things that that we talk about colloquially. It's a part of our vernacular, but our understanding of it isn't quite concrete. In fact, if you ask 10 people to define culture, you'll probably get 30 different answers. And one would say, well, okay, so what? Like, what's the big deal? But to your point, that there's no force more influential in human behavior than culture, full stop, right? What we buy, where we go, what we do, where we work, if we work, how we work, who we marry, if we marry, where we vacation, what we eat, how we bury the dead. All these things are byproducts of our cultural subscription. The better we understand those things, the more likely we are to impact them. Whether you are bringing your products to market, through commerce, whether you are leading an organization and you want people to behave a certain way, or whether you are trying to get people to sign up for your newsletter or vote for your candidate or join your church. Mm -hmm. We're all in the business of influencing behavior to one degree or another, which makes culture like the biggest cheat code ever. And the better we understand it, like the better Rosetta Stone we have to talk about it, the more likely we are to operationalize it. 
So I think about culture through a Durkheimian lens, Emil Durkheim, one of the, the founding fathers of sociology. Okay. He described culture as a system of values, symbols, and norms that demarcate who people are and what the expectations of people like them are. Now that's mm-hmm. powerful because to your point, it's hard to copy culture because people have very specific beliefs, very specific cultural norms or social norms rather, and language. And the only way we understand them is to get very close to them, to understand the nuances of them, right? Uh, Which is why, you know, we can look at one thing and it means something to one people, believing something else to someone else, right? You know, that's why for some, a cow is is leather and for others is a deity. And for some it's dinner or why for some a rug is decor for others, it's a souvenir. And for some, it's a place of worship, right? So copying those things require great, great intimacy. And that's why it's hard or some say impossible to copy one's culture. You can copy the executions. You could copy Mm -hmm. sort of how it manifests, but the anchor of culture is our identity and the beliefs and ideologies that we hold. And those things inform what we wear, what we do, where we go, how we talk, how we behave based on the expectations of what it means to be someone like us. So you broke it down in your book into three elements. I found those really helpful ways to think about culture. Do you mind talking about those three elements a little bit, Marcus? Yeah. So if you extrapolate Emil Durkheim's definition of culture, his, his lens of culture, this system, and think about it through a more contemporary lens, a gentleman by the name of Raymond Williams, who was a cultural scholar, a theorist, a critic, actually. You know, he would talk about culture as this like system of systems that are anchored in our identity, who we are, how we self-identify. Because of how I self-identify, I hold a set of beliefs and ideologies, right? These are stories I tell myself about the world right? The beliefs I hold, the truths that I hold about the world, the stories I tell myself about the world and who I am in those stories, the character I play. And because of my ideologies and beliefs, I therefore exercise myself in a way that is aligned with those ideologies and belief, right? The artifacts that I don what I wear, the behavior that is normative for people like me and the language that we use, right? The cold words, the jargon, the slang, the colloquialisms. And then those things are expressed through cultural production, cultural product, right? The movies I watch, the music I listen to, the literature I take in, the comic books that I read, the podcasts that I listen to, and the brands and branded products from which I consume are all byproducts of my cultural subscription. For instance, I grew up listening to to hip hop, watching the Cosby show and and studying the and reading the Bible, right? And because of those things, I have a specific take on uh, aesthetic, like uh, a mm-hmm. fashion aesthetic from, yep. from hip hop or what it means to be a good parent beyond my my parents being a, uh, a model, right? From the Cosby yep. show. And then what it means to be moral and upright from reading the Bible, right? The cultural product that I read is someone who self-identifies as a Christian, as a Collins, right? As a hip hop fan, it not only reflects what people like me do, but it also sort of gives instruction of what people like me ought to do. Yeah, that is a super interesting way to kind of reflect on it and the importance of it that you don't necessarily recognize when it's happening. Like in my work, you know, I feel like there's a language that we speak. 
Um, In my family, there's a language that we speak that is very different than the language that we speak in in the workplace. That's right. Uh, But if if you don't speak that language, like if you don't understand it, it's really hard for you to feel a part of that that culture and that community, right? 1,000%. I mean, language is, is an invitation that signals to people that you're one of us. You use our isms, you use our, our vernacular. So I, I take Wyden Kennedy, for instance, uh, the organization I work for where I run strategy in the New York office, right? We have a, a lot of sayings, mm-hmm. you know, we, we say, you know, uh, come in stupid, you know, mm-hmm. shut up when people are talking, um, you know, fail harder. I mean, we have mm-hmm. these, these, these isms yep. that are expressed yep. through the words that we use. And when people say it, you go, Oh, you're one of us. Right. Exactly. Right? And in every, every, collective, every network or community we're a part of, we have these sets of cultural characteristics, beliefs, artifacts, behaviors, and language that govern what it means to be a part of this organization if you self-identify as such. Yeah. Now, there are people who are in our organization that goes, I mean, I work here, but like, I don't feel like I'm in the in crowd or I don't feel like I'm like a part of the, 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 the mm-hmm. community. And those people are always on the fringe. Right, those yep. people aren't as engaged, but it's the people who buy into the cultural characteristics. They not only drive sort of the the manifestation of those characteristics, but also they know what the expectations of their behaviors ought to be, and therefore they behave accordingly. Yeah. So, so another area that I'm kind of nerdy about is is neuroscience and just anything that has to do with the brain and. I was really fascinated in your book when you talked about how the brain reacts to messages around culture versus just, you know, if I'm a leader in the organization, if I'm just talking about it, that's different than, you know, how our brain reacts to it and how it drives people to act. And could you just tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, absolutely. So there's a part of the brain that we know as the limbic system. That's associated with emotions, right? Trust, love, loyalty, all the gooey stuff that relationships are made of as associated with the limbic system because of its connection to the hippocampus, the amygdala that are really hot spots for memory, right? So when we experience something emotionally, it's sort of tattooed to our hippocampus, to our amygdala, so that we know how to respond the next time it happens, right? We, we, we know what to do. But not only are emotions associated with the limbic system, so is decision-making and behavior. And we know this intuitively because we call that intuition. I just felt it in my gut. I don't know why I felt it in my gut and therefore I decided to do X, Y, and Z, right? Well, you didn't feel it in your gut, you felt it in your limbic system. And because of that, you, you moved accordingly. And it's hard for us to describe those gut instincts, right? It's hard for us to describe intuition because the part of the brain associated with articulation is in the neocortex, a different part of the brain, right? But not only is articulation associated with the neocortex, but so is rationality. So it's easy for us to describe the rational things, but hard for us to describe the emotional things. Uh, it's like your brain is like a, you have a Kirk brain and a Spock brain, right? <laughs> and your Spock brain is like data-driven, insight-focused, and your Kirk brain's like, man, let's just do this based on what I feel. So how then... Do leaders motivate people to move? It's not through the rational arguments. It's through activating the emotional part of the brain, activating the limbic system. And culture is extremely emotional because it is associated with who we are. It's our identity. 
Because of who I am, people like me do something like this. And when someone preaches the gospel associated to our shared belief, our shared ideology, it's more inclined to activate the limbic system than telling me facts and data that is much more aligned with our rational brain. Now, here's the good part, that when you can emotionally evoke the limbic system and then have rational arguments to support it, good night. That is one plus one equals three. Yeah. Right, that is that is putting two hands together to make something even more powerful, right? Uh, C. C. Chapman puts it this way: you know, you start with the soul and end with the oh, cell. I love that. Right, you start with the soul, start with the emotional part, then end with the the rational arguments, yeah. and it creates the the justification that people need to say, ah, this is what I'm going to do, and it makes sense, but it also feels right. Right. Yeah, I I just wanted to go back and and point out in case other people didn't catch this, like your reference to the Spock brain and the Kirk brain, like if you didn't watch Star Trek, uh, you know, uh, you would have no idea what Marcus was talking about. So like, right. I, you know, I <laughs> yeah. feel like I'm we have that cultural connection because I'm like, yes, I know exactly what you mean. That evokes something in my mind when I think about who those two characters were. I mean, what a powerful, what a powerful, powerful observation. You're right. I mean, and this is the thing about culture is that those shorthands we sort of take for granted. Yeah. Like we just kind of, I just said it without even thinking, realizing, oh, you definitely know what I'm talking about. But not everybody knows that, right? Not everybody knows Spock and Kurt without, without saying it's from Star Trek. But you knowing that, you go, oh, I get the reference. And now we are connected. And if you didn't get the reference, you'd be like, I don't know what this guy is talking about. And we therefore would feel disconnected. This is the power of culture. It's so powerful. It connects us. And because we are connected, we're more inclined to act alike, act similarly. Right. Okay. Speaking of that, you talk a lot about people finding their congregation or kind of finding their people. And we're thinking a lot along the same lines from a workplace perspective, because we're trying to think about how can work feel more like a community, like you're a member of the community. And as opposed to, it's just, I go there and I do this job and I have this transactional relationship. Right. How do I have that more emotive relationship with people? And and so you talk about, okay, this is where we're going to talk about Beyonce, everybody, because this is, <laughs> you talk about uh, her fans and how they actually kind of, you know, self-organized. And I was wondering if you could share that story with everybody. Sure thing. So, you know, one of my biggest learnings in my career was actually one of my biggest failures. Uh, I was tasked to, to run digital strategy for, for Beyonce. And I had a, a lot of things I was responsible for. That was a part of my remit. One of which was helping moving her offline fan club online. Now we're talking like 2009, 2010. So this is very early in the major adoption of social networking platforms like Facebook and Twitter. But these things were were really coming to, to bear at the time. It's like, oh, I could definitely do this. This is an easy one. Check this off the book very easily. But I realized that you know we did, we tried to build a community for her. The entire team it wasn't just me. Tried to build this community for her, um, this fan club, this online fan club that we were building. And when we launched it, it, it was a party that no one showed up to. And I say that with hyperbole. It was not as engaged as we expected, considering Beyonce's fandom or be, considered Beyonce's, her stature. And we're just asking ourselves, what's going on here? Why isn't this thing working? And we realized, as we looked across the, the social web, 
there's a community of people that self congregated that brought themselves mm-hmm. together without any of our help, right? They, they brought themselves together because they saw the world similarly. They believed, right? And they called themselves the beehive, right? They believed what Beyonce believed and they assembled together, not because of their fandom as much as their shared beliefs and ideologies. And they had their own language they established. They had their own social norms they established. They had their own artifacts that they established for themselves. And the team said, whoa, why are we trying to build this thing where it already exists? Let's just go help them. Let's go facilitate that community and make that the fan club. And you know, fast forward to today, that's Beyonce's official fan club, the Beehive. It wasn't built. It was, it, it was facilitated. And I think that as we think about the companies or organizations that we run, the takeaway for me is the idea isn't to sort of, we're going to build this thing anew. Instead, we're going to find people who see the world the way we do and invite them to be a part of the organization. They just so happen to work here, right? They bring their skill sets here, but what we're building is community, right? We're building a community, a set of people who see the world similarly. So when we interview folks, we're asking them about their transactional things or, or their value propositions, right? I, I have this skill, I have that skill. That's great. But what do you believe? How do you see the world, right? Like, tell me about the frames by which you translate the world. And someone could be extremely talented, but if they don't subscribe to the same ideological point of view that we do, then are they the best fit for us? Right. And we're not talking about hiring the same kinds of people. This is about yeah, echo yeah. chambers. This is about shared belief. You know, working at Apple was really illuminating for me in this way that Apple has so much diversity in the kinds of walks of life that people have there. May not be, you know, as racially and ethnically diverse, but definitely people with different factions of life, different cultural subscriptions that all come together to work at Apple, the thousands of people, tens of thousands of people that do. But the thing that unites them is a shared point of view. They're there because they believe in challenging the conventional norms, bucking the, the, the conventional status quo, right? And that's what unites them. And the idea there, and we say, we look at Apple and say, they have a great culture. Right. So much so that we'd say that it's a cult-like brand. Sure. That's how salient sure. the cultural characteristics are. So as we think about our companies, yes, we want to bring the most talented people together, that 1,000%, right? But if we want to take advantage of the power of culture, then finding people who are not only super talented, but also see the world the way we do. They're one of us that are not coming here to find a job. They're coming here to find community. We find ourselves in a far more powerful position as an organization to really harness the power of culture. So what advice would you give to a leader who's trying to build their culture? And maybe, you know, like you look at a place like Apple, as you just said, like it's really clear that they're kind of challenging the norm, as you said. Not every business has that same kind of emotive, or or maybe they don't feel like they have that same kind of emotive mission or vision of the world. You know, what what would you say to somebody who's, I don't know, making automotive parts or, you know, how do you apply some of these concepts that you're talking about? So I'm called to mind um, what's known as the bricklayer's parable. And, And the idea is this. See, I'm driving down the street, and, and I see you on the side of the road, Chris, and you're laying bricks. I go, hey, Chris, what are you doing? And you say, oh, I'm laying bricks, Marcus. You have a job. You're a bricklayer. 
if I drive down the street and I see you laying bricks, I say, Chris, what, what are you doing? And you say, oh, I'm building a church. Oh, now you have a career. I build churches. If I'm driving down the street and I see you laying bricks, I go, Chris, what are you doing? And you say, I'm building the house of God. Now you have a calling. Which Chris is more excited about coming to work every day? The one with the calling. The one that I'm here, not just to do a job. I'm here because I'm contributing to something far greater than, than myself. You know, there's that folklore about John F. Kennedy when he said, that, hey, we, we choose to go to the moon. And one day, according to the lore, he was visiting a NASA station and he saw a, a janitor sweeping the floor. And he goes to the janitor. He says, hey, how's it going? The janitor says, Mr. President. He says, how are you doing, Mr. President? He says, I'm doing well. And the JFK asked the janitor, what are you doing? And the janitor says, oh, I'm putting a man on the moon, sir. Here's the <laughs> yeah. janitor yeah. sweeping the floor, right. sweeping the floor. And he understands the assignment that everybody in this organization, even if you are doing what one would say would be the most remedial task of cleaning you are laying a brick to putting people on the moon. You are laying a brick to building the house of God. And that's how we should think about our organization, whether you create sheet metal, whether you create uh, screws, whether you, you grow apples, or you make Apple computers. The organization, we are here because we see the world similarly, and everybody has a role to play and putting the man on the moon. So since we're talking about building cathedrals here, I want to shift the conversation <laughs> a little bit to literally talking about physical places where people gather. Because we're in a time right now where I think a lot of organizations are trying to figure out how they're working differently. You know, more people working yeah. remotely, some people working physically and in the same places and I'm just curious how you see place playing a role in terms of cultivating culture. Like, what might we do better, differently, if you have a thought on that one? Well, the physical environment is important uh, because, to your point, the physical environment is like a temple. It's sort of a prompt, a cue for us to say, when we are here, we act a certain way. It's like, for me, I act one way when I'm out with friends than I do when I'm in the church sanctuary. I act differently. Right, I'm still the same Marcus, yep. but that physical space is a prompt for me to say, oh, these are the expectations of people like me. These are the behaviors, the artifacts and language that is expected of me with these people. So when we think about the physical environment of our organization, there should be a prompt, not that I go here to get work done, not just that rather, but I go here and there's a certain way that I show up. There's a certain way that, I, that I'm meant to be. So the idea then is how do we curate the physical environment such that there are multiple prompts that keep me in that headspace, but also create the psychological safety that it is necessary for me to do what I need to get done, right? Um, and it's more than just we have a foosball table in the kitchen. Right. Like th those are just superficial, yeah. right? The idea is what do we believe and how do we curate the space to be signifiers of that belief? Right? How do we curate the physical space such that they're not only reminders of what I'm supposed to do, but they actually help me do that very thing? Yep. So you've also written in your book that when we achieve collective agreement, people don't join because of who we are. They do it 
because of who they are. And I know that this could be about, you know, it could be about a brand and your work in branding, but it also feels like it could be a workplace. Can you talk more about how it might relate to like even attracting or retaining talent in terms of how we work with people? Absolutely. So I think of it this way, that we often think that as a as an organization, we're we're gonna go recruit some talent, right? We're gonna go to a college campus yep. or we're gonna put ourselves out on LinkedIn or wherever the outlets, we're gonna go get people and we're gonna tell people how great we are, the value propositions of what it means to work here. You get to work with amazing people, we pay well and we have 401k and we have this, we have that, like all things about who we are. And I think the idea is to instead subvert that and think more about who they are and say, I'm going to talk to you people who see the world like this because we see the world similarly. And we're looking for people who have a worldview, an ideology and belief about the world that governs how they show up in the world, right? So people join the organization, not because of who you are, they join the organization because of who they are and who they are happen to be congruent with the organization. I choose this organization because it is an extension of who I am or who I want to be. It is a reflection, a receipt of my identity. And the moment that the organization no longer is that, people retreat from it internally. You know, people you know, refer mm -hmm. to as quiet quitting or, or they become disengaged and they go, look, man, I'm just here for a paycheck. Now we're in a transactional relationship. And they go, is there a better way to get a better paycheck at a different company? I'm going to go search for somewhere else. But there's people who will stay at a job where they've been at the same title for a long time. Their pay is only incrementally increased, but they stay because, of course, I'll be here. This is home for me. These are my people. This is who I am. This is me. Right? They stay because of who they are. Not necessarily because who the organization is. They, as the organization is an outcome of their own identity. And they decide, they pick when those things are congruent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're reminding me of like when we were interviewing employees probably about a year ago. And when we we're asking people about like, hey, why would you want to come work for Steelcase? Like talk about that. And where I was expecting to get more of what I'd call kind of the MBA answer of like, you know, here's where I see my, my career going. Like what everybody <laughs> yeah. talked about is our commitment to the environment and sustainability. And like, I found that so fascinating that I was like, wow, this is, it's who they are. And they, they wanted to work for a company that shared that same value. Uh, and and I just found that super interesting that, that that was the thing that, you know, people just kept coming back to. I was like, wow. I mean, that, that's such a powerful thing because I tell MBA students, don't lead with your resume, your value propositions. I worked here, I did this. Start with, my name is Marcus and here's how I see the world. I believe that, for instance, I believe that uh, marketing is the act of going to market. And the core function of marketing is to influence behavior. And I want to work at an organization that is committed to not only creating products that are helpful for people, but their marketing activity is driven to get people to adopt behavior. And you do that all the time in your work. And I feel like this is the kind of place where I'll be better at that. And if your organization believes that, they go, whoa, hey, this person's one of us. 
and the conversation completely changes. And that person is not like all the other candidates you just interviewed. That person, you go, you go, you go. Oh, Chris, you got to meet so and so. This this woman is like she she sounds like right, us, right? And that person is much more inclined to get hired, not just because of their skill set, but because of their congruence mm, with the community. Mm, that oh, that feels so familiar. Having that conversation, yeah, they sound like us. So okay, so. Let's carry that another step further because, you know, when we think about like the advertising world that you're working in, obviously we've seen the rise of influencers and, you know, I'm obviously more likely to buy something if there's somebody like me or who I consider a, you know, a friend or, you know, if they recommend it. So when you think about culture within an organization, like, is there a new influencer? You know, is, is it the leader or is it the employee? Do you think that's changing? Sure. I'd say that it's influence is not analogous with authority, right? One may have authority, but not a lot of influence. One may have direct power, but not a lot of, of influence, right? Influence is the, uh, the ability to lead, to push people a certain way based on their behavior and, and their, their characteristics, right? So the, the idea then is that there's people who can be sort of the lowest on the totem pole that can be super influential because people trust them. Because they have credence within those people. You could be the CEO of a company, but people don't trust you. And therefore, though you have authority, your influence isn't as great unless you directly impose power on them, right? I would change the way we think about that to say, who are the most influential people in the building? That is, who are the people who have the highest probability of encouraging other people to act, right? And typically those people are people with a set of close, strong ties with people in the organization and weak ties. They call them bridges, right? Based on the structure of the organization. So this idea of influence isn't just how many people you can touch or people know you, but it's really about where you sit within the structure of the network of the organization. And the more likely you are to identify those people who have strong ties and a collection of weak ties, and those people are reflective of sort of the collective thinking of those people, that individual is most likely to be influential than someone who has a big, you know, glossy title. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think it's different in terms of, you know, building culture and influence? Do you think there's a difference between how really large organizations like an Apple, where it's very dispersed around the world, um, how they need to do that versus maybe a smaller or, you know, kind of more mid-sized business? It's definitely much harder the bigger an organization is. Yep. It's much, much harder. Um, Robin Dunbar refers to this as the Dunbar number, that there is a a maximum sort of cognitive, uh, 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 a cognitive ceiling on the amount of relationships that we can we can hold, that we can manage, yeah. that we can groom and we can nourish. Right? And when an organization exceeds that number, which is about 150 people, then it gets really hard for the organization to act as one, as a unit. So the bigger the organization is, the more fractured it becomes. So the idea is how do you make these different fractures still ladder up to the overarching culture of the organization, right? Super difficult thing to do. When you're a smaller organization, you know everybody. Not only do you know everybody, I can see everybody. Right? We talked about the physical space that we were in earlier. In the physical space, I can observe people's behavior and I know what to do. 
I'm observing through social proof what's expected of people like me. Oh, this is how we hold the elevator. This is how this is what we do at the coffee machine. Mm-hmm. I, I get to observe these things. I know how to mimic them. But when it's a large organization, it's hard to observe everybody. Right. right? So I start observing people who are most like myself. And we find ourselves in these smaller network communities. We were designed as human beings to be a part of these smaller tribes, these networks, these communities. Right. So that's the benefit of having a smaller organization. Yeah. Right. So we, we create departments. Right. Now the departments have their own culture. Right. And the idea is that the culture of that department is a different manifestation of the overarching culture of the organization. And that's the job of the department head to ensure that there is localized expectations, but those expectations are not antithetical to the expectations of the broader organization. Yeah. So other goals large organizations are working on diversity, huge issue, huge issue that we're certainly focused on. And and I'm just curious what you think about how developing this cultural cohesion or how do we do that in the best way when we're also trying to create a very diverse organization with diverse perspectives, um, diverse right. experiences? So I think that, you know, we talk about DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and we tend to focus on diversity first. Like how do we make sure that it's a diverse body of people because that is a proxy for a diverse body of perspectives. But I think that the idea is to actually start with the I, then the E, then the D. Start with inclusion. Mm. Because you probably have people in the organization who are representative of different perspectives, different backgrounds. They're already diverse. And when you have people who are already in the organization who don't feel included, when you bring other new voices, new people in, those people are going to feel disenfranchised too soon, right? If you got diverse people in the building who don't feel like they're a part of the organization, when new people come who are diverse, they won't feel like there is a, a, a central density, a, a gravitational pull for people like themselves. And they'll be just like the other people who aren't included, right? right? So the first thing that starts is make people who are in the building now feel like they are a part of the organization. Right? They have a seat at the table. They're part of this thing. And that their seat at the table is equitable with everyone else, right? That their voice is just as important as everyone else. And then we start to bring more new diverse voices to the table and ensure that those people have a seat at the table, that their voices are heard, right? We're not looking for people who uh, are, are clones of us, just people who believe what we believe. And as a result, we can work towards a collective goal, but the direction that we go to get there can be different, right? I work at the University of Michigan Raw School of Business as well, right? Tons of different perspectives sure. here, but we're all united under one goal, right? Is to find the good in business, right? Do good in the world by doing good business. We all believe that, but the manner in which we do that differ. And it's that heterogeneity, that diversity of thought that gets us to better solutions. I love that. Marcus has given me a big smile just uh, thinking about like this idea of starting with inclusion first. I, I think that's just such a great insight. Marcus, I have just enjoyed talking to you so much today. I think we could talk for another hour. Uh, but I know that you are obviously a busy person. So I'm going to let you go and just thank you so much for joining us today. I'm grateful for the time. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. 
After talking with Marcus, I really wanted to talk to my colleague, Robin Roseborough, who joined us from Vancouver, Canada. And uh, in her role there, uh, she's supporting the architectural and design community and really drawing on her background as an organizational psychologist. And so I knew that she would be really intrigued with some of the things that Marcus had to say. So thanks for joining me today, Robin. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me here, Chris. I'm really happy to have listened to that episode with Marcus and learned so much about what culture is. I don't think I had a clear definition before that. He did have a great definition. I I really appreciated that too. And I loved some of the examples he talked about in terms of how place plays a role in kind of communicating to us about culture and about behaviors that are appropriate, you know, within that culture. So I loved his example of talking about how you might behave differently if you're hanging out with friends or if you're in a church or a library, you know, those spaces just tell you what's appropriate. And so I'm just curious what you think about that when it comes to work. Like, how might we think about designing places to help curate the culture that we want to have? Well, there's a lot of different factors around that. And I really like how he described those pieces of culture impacting our behavior and our language and everything. And it comes back to those those visible things, the social cues and norms that we can observe and see when we're in the workplace together, but also the little trinkets that we might see on somebody's desk, mm-hmm. whether it's like a picture of their pet. Um, and I always use this example of, I have an Aussie Shepherd too. And it's like, if I see somebody with one, I'm going to be like, let's talk about those first 18 months and all the things that they ate in our house. Like, <laughs> And it it's a jumping off point to really develop that rapport with somebody and trust. And it's really important that we have that trust in the workplace because it leads to the ability to be able to take risks. Something as simple as asking a question or sharing new ideas. And it's harder to do that when we don't have own desks anymore. So Mm -hmm. we had um, this work better lab in Vancouver, which is something that Steelcase explored in various different cities where we had this pop-up and we explored what the future workplace could look like and Mm -hmm. brought many different tours through and had these amazing conversations about this evolution of workplace and culture was a big piece of that. And it's, With non-owned desking, how can you create that? And one of the brainstorms that came out of it was, well, maybe it's something as simple as having Polaroid cameras that people can take home at the Mm. end of the day. And you have this community board like you would see in any neighborhood Starbucks and people could post or literally post with Mm -hmm. a thumbtack their images the next day of their activities, the people in their life that they care about to kind of facilitate those conversations with others. If I see somebody posting a photo on this board and it's this hike that they did over the weekend and it's one that I've been thinking about doing, then I'm going to go have a conversation with that person, even if I didn't know them prior. So it allows for those connections to really form. Yeah. You know, I know that when we're when we're together physically, we have an opportunity, even if we don't have the shared um, or have if we don't own our own desks anymore. But, you know, I even think about that, like when we're working remotely, you know, how do we help communicate those kinds of things? Like, you know, you can see my books, I can see your background that gives us a little bit of affinity. But it also, you know, sometimes it it doesn't always feel like you get, because it's curated, I guess, you know, to be on mm-hmm. the screen. Sometimes it doesn't always feel like you get that kind of authentic feel that you do, you know, when you just run into somebody and, 
you know, the cafe or something like that. Um, You know, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, Marcus talked about kind of from an attraction and retention point of view, this idea about how the organization communicates what it stands for and that maybe it's not as important, you know, it's that it's about the organization, but it's about whether people see themselves, see their values reflected back to them in the organization. And, you know, that comes back to this whole notion of creating belonging that we've been talking about for a long time. And I would love to hear your take on, you know, how we create that sense of belonging. And do you think it's important? You know, does it matter to people or should we just say, do your work and I don't care if you feel a sense of belonging. I I think I know your answer on that one. I know. Like, it is so important. <laughs> and it is um, 1975, this scientist, Baumeister, discovered that it's actually a fundamental human need. It's something mm. that is essential for human flourishing, which is something that we talk about wanting to create in a workplace. And mm. there are a lot of ways that we can do this. We can help people connect with each other in a workplace like if you think about it, how many hours do we spend in a workplace? We don't connect in our neighborhoods at home in the same sort of way or with our community naturally. So workplace is really where most people are now finding a sense of belonging. So being able to create that is extremely important to lead to well-being for them to be able to get their best work done. So yes, super important. How we can create that through space is There's a multitude of ways, whether it's activities or space-based. There was a great example recently with Adobe. They created their Founders Tower. And I really love the design element that they put into it, which is cued through color theory and neuroscience, Mm. where they have three distinct different themes and then a whole bunch of different spaces that people can choose to get their work done in. But these color themes draw people in because of the certain energy and vibe that's there. If you're going to all the calm blue spaces, it may be something that you innately need and you're going to be connected to people who are also wanting to be in that space. It doesn't need to be through color. It could Mm -hmm. be a space that is full of plants and biophilia and Mm -hmm. softness and light colors. And if you're drawn to that, you may be just needing a bit of that less, um, sensory overload Mm -hmm. versus somebody who needs that energy fix from being in the purples and oranges and bright colors and a lot of more energy through volume and everything in that space. And that's going to draw different people, allowing them to find their own people to connect with outside of their departments. Um, You can also possibly do it through different activities. So instead of just doing the Pizza Friday, which brings everybody together, but doesn't allow people to really connect over a shared Mm -hmm. sense of belonging, you can have something where you really get to know your employees and find out what their passions and interests are and curate personalized events for those different groups. So that can be something as simple as bringing somebody in and teaching them how to make that perfect sourdough that they may not have mastered during the pandemic or Mm -hmm. um, having a class on painting or even dedicating a room in the office for people to practice, um, create a band together or have a choir practice or something like that. So that way they're connecting to people that have shared interests and that's where you're going to get a really deep sense of belonging in the workplace. Yeah, those are lovely thoughts. I just um, would appreciate something different from this pattern that we've gotten ourselves into that started with 
the pandemic of these, you know, like 30 minute back to back video calls, boom, 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 boom. You know, who has totally. time to yeah. make sourdough bread or even talk to their colleagues. So, I mean, just breaking that pattern, I think would be uh, huge toward creating the kind of culture where people want to belong. So Robin, I know like you and I could talk about this forever, but I just appreciate you coming and sharing a few thoughts with our listeners today about how we could go about creating those kind of cultures where people want to work. So thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thank you for being with us today. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and visit us at steelcase.com research to sign up for weekly updates on workplace research, insights, and design ideas delivered to your inbox. So what are we talking about next week, Rebecca? Next week, our conversation is with Anya Kamenetz. Anya covered education for many years, including with NPR. Her newest book is called The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. We're gonna talk to her about what's happening in our classrooms and how online and hybrid learning are impacting kids and teachers. Plus, she has some really inspiring success stories to share as well. Yeah, I thought so as well. So I really hope you can join us. Thanks again for being here with us today. And we hope your day at work tomorrow is just a little bit better. Many thanks to everyone who helps make Work Better podcasts possible. Our creative art direction is by Aaron Ellison. Editing and sound mixing by Soundpost Studios. Technical support by Mark Caswell and Jose Jimenez. And our digital publishing is by Aureli Ariano and Jordan Marks.